It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very noisy nut hatch. That was two noisy nut hatches in an alder tree here by a little stream. And uh, they are chatting to each other about other things as they move up and down the tree trunk and onto the edge of branches looking for food. This may be the beginning of a sort of courtship ritual. As it's mid January and a lot of birds are already thinking about spring. Hello and welcome to the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast. I'd love to welcome you to season 11 of our adventures in the countryside. We're calling this one Voices of the Countryside, where we meet a range of interesting rural folk, but also listen out for the sounds of the wild, rather like these nut hatches. So this is episode two we're going to hear about a different way of voicing the landscape, its people and its wildlife, through music. One stunning morning recently, very light today actually, clear and beautiful but chilly, I headed over to the Cotswolds to meet Jeremy Pound of BBC Music magazine for a lovely walk in his native hills, an area it seems, thick on the ground with composers who loved walking in the countryside and made music about what they experienced when they were there. Jeremy's words are a brilliant introduction to how music can evoke nature, landscape, countryside and the, and the mood of the outdoors. You can find all of the music Jeremy mentions on the streaming service Spotify. Just open up Spotify and search for BBC Countryfile magazine. For now though, let me transport you to the musical world of the Cotswolds. Jeremy, it's a beautiful, beautiful, crisp, the crispest of January mornings. It's lovely. Where are you taking me today? Right, well, we're going, we're in the south side of Cheltenham at the moment, and uh, my, my area of town called Charlton Kings, and we're skirting, we're currently skirting the bottom of Leckhampton Hill, which is a hill which runs to the south of Cheltenham, and we're going to go up Leckhampton Hill. And we're going to go cut along the top of Leckhampton Hill, from which you have fantastic views of not just Cheltenham, but Gloucestershire beyond, and then over towards the Malverns and Worcestershire. But well, I mean, what a day for it. It's like carved out of crystal today. It's, uh, we're walking, the ground is frozen solid, I bet it's quite boggy here normally, is it? Yes, this is normally a quagmire along here, um, well, as you can see. So actually having rock-hard frost is actually a rather good thing, because otherwise we'd normally be up to our ankles in mud by this stage. Well. Quite grateful. It must be about minus two at the moment, I would say. But in my 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 furgo, furgometer, um, and well, we're, we're obviously here. So we're going to look at whatever we find along the way. There's a great tit singing up here. Kind of lovely first sign of spring. But we're talking about other music inspired by the countryside, inspired by surroundings like this. We are indeed. First of all, though, you're going to have to tell me what told you that that was a great tit you could hear there. Um, good question. Just years of listening to them. Well, they're, they're, this is a dunnock here, this sort of squeaky wheel. There's a chaffinches. Let's see that here, that sort of squeaky, that's a dunnock. Um, just watching, listening, ticking them off over many, many, <laughs> I'm 50 now, so I've probably been, listen, I've probably been learning birdsong for 30 years. So you and me both, I'm also 50. Oh, well. And for me, I guess that my classical music is your bird song because people yeah. I, I can hear 
a piece of music on the radio and my son will say who's that dad and I'll say oh that's Vaughan Williams or that, that's Bax he says how do you know that I said, well, you just, you just learn from years' worth of listening, as you say. So I would trade some of my bird knowledge for some of your music knowledge, just because that is... But that is the same with me in birdsong, you see, because uh, I come on these walks regularly, I hear the birds, and I think, what is that? And I never know. Um, I'd love to have that expert here. I'll do you a deal then. Today we're going to trade birdsong for musical knowledge. So we're gently climbing, and two 50-year-old men losing... <laughs> struggling for breath, but... Uh, <sighs> This is an amazing scene. Look at the frost. This is the thickest frost I've seen for years. Yeah. You can really hear under our feet the crunch of frost. And we're on a sort of scrubby, open, very interesting looking grassland, which looks perfect for all sorts of wildlife here. It is. And what we are walking along here, actually, at the moment, is what has been called the Gustav Holst Way. Ah. It's just a short stretch of it. Um, there's Gustav Holst Way runs from... Cranham, just south of Cheltenham, to um, Whitfrittington, which is about ooh, 17, 18 miles east of here. Um, and actually the whole walk itself is about 35 miles long. And it's sort of, it's, it's not where Holst himself would have walked. It's named after him because he's the local famous composer around here. But he was uh, an ardent walker. And I suspect that he may well have walked along this patch at some point. So you can imagine, go back a century, you can imagine him trooping along here, yeah. admiring the views. Can you tell me a bit about him? I don't know much about him. His, his um, father was of Swedish stock, actually, not German. And when he was born, he was actually Gustav von Holst. Come the beginning of the 20th century, when, our, when British appetites for Germans kind of faded a little, <laughs> put it that way, yeah. um, he dropped the von because it was proving difficult. Um, he was born in Cheltenham in 1874. He lived in Cheltenham for about the first 20 years of his life, so very much a Cotswold boy. And then he moved to, to Essex and then London. He taught for, in London for most of the rest of his life. But he always retained a, a real affection for this part of the world. In his 50s, there's this famous tale where um, he was writing a piece of music called Egdon Heath, which is based on the work by Thomas Hardy. Oh yeah, okay, well, yes, I know, yeah. Egdon Heath itself doesn't actually exist. It's a, it's a sort of generic Heath, Egdon Heath, yeah. based on British southern landscape. And while, um, while Holster was writing this piece of music based on that, he went down to visit Thomas Hardy, who lived in Dorchester. Now Dorchester is around, I think it's about 90, 100 miles from here in Cheltenham. And rather than get the train or anything like that, Despite the fact that cars were around in that time, Holst walked it <laughs> all the way from Cheltenham to Dorchester just to visit Thomas Hardy. Why? Just because he loved walking so He much. loved walking. Probably go this way. Okay, probably yes, less, a little less muddy. Initially, he walked everywhere because he was skint. In his 50s, although I don't think he was ever rich, I do think he actually really enjoyed just going out and enjoying the countryside on long walks. Did the countryside inspire his composing? Quite a lot, yes. Um, I'll stop there. We're going to clamber over a stile. This is the ice here. This is Jeremy Pound of BBC Music Magazine clambering over a stile. And he was, he was inspired not just by the countryside, he was also inspired by folk music as well, and the two were very much intertwined at the time. So there was this big fad, and this was... Partly inspired by Vaughan Williams, who's his, ba- his, his great mate. And Vaughan Williams would go out round the countryside listening to local folk songs, country folk songs, either recording them or writing them down, and then incorporating them into his own music. Um, and he was really into promoting folk song. And that appears in some of music, less so than in Vaughan Williams's, but yes, there's, and there's one or two, there's Holster in one or two of his works, it's probably one or two of his less famous works kind of evokes the British countryside. He wrote a Cotswold symphony, for instance, which is sort of oh, right, right, okay. celebrating so. his own patch of the world, that sort of thing. How would you describe Holt's sort of pastoral? His pastoral style? Yeah. Gosh, now that really is difficult. I mean, it's very tuneful, Yeah. his pastoral style, because they say it has, um, it has, a lot of the time it has folk at its roots. You won't hear any cases of atonalism, as you call it, which is music which you can't really work out what key it's going on and where it's going. Oh, okay, yes. I'm... 
And there's nothing wrong with atonalism, I love it, but it's not part of the pastoral style. Um, no, quite jarring maybe if you just want sweeping, yes. a sweeping landscape. Or... And I think that is, it's very hard to define, but a lot of pastoralism is, as you just, that very phrase, sweeping landscapes. It's sweeping long melodies, nothing really kind of acerbic, nothing majorly percussive. It's that sort of, you can imagine yourself looking out over a large, a large patch of land. Yeah. In my opinion, Holst was one of the, possibly the most underrated British composer there has been. Um, he was writing things over a hundred years ago, which um, were extremely forward-looking. I mean, Mars from the planets, for instance, no one had ever written anything like that before. Try and pick out the tunes in Mars, for instance. There are none. It is very, actually quite similar to um, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which was a contemporary work of it. Yeah. Um, and it's all about rhythm and little kind of little motifs here and there, but no real tune. You try and whistle Mars, you can't. Yeah, okay. And that was quite groundbreaking. And then there's other pieces like his, he wrote this piece called Benny Mora, which is where he went on a walking holiday to Algeria in, I think it's about 1908. Um, and he potted around the streets of Algiers and then out into the desert. And he heard a flute player on a corner and is playing this tune and now Holst just took this tune and kind of repeated it and repeated it and repeated it in this last movement of this piece called Benny Mora and today we would know this as being what's called minimalism this idea of just this kind of repetitive theme coming back and back and back and back now the minimalists didn't come around until the likes of Robin's desperate to speak to you oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> no no it's, it's not a minimalist the Robin. minimalist Robin yeah. Um, yeah and so 50 years later you had this minimalism phase where the likes of Steve Reich Philip Glass etc but they did the same but actually Holtz had got there 50 years early he was incredibly incredibly groundbreaking and his music at his best is just simply stunning you said he's a British composer yes is, he, is that how he's considered then a British I mean he's obviously got Swedish ancestry and all this uh... he is very much considered a British composer in fact the British have sort of adopted him as one of theirs probably more than he'd be comfortable with because he was um, he was very much a pacifist he wouldn't have been interested in anti-German sentiment, obviously. Nor, in fact, was Elgar. Um, and Elgar and Holst actually both share this, is that they had their music kind of adopted as great British symbols. So, for instance, in the middle of Holst's Jupiter from the planets, there's this famous tune which goes... Which we sing today as I vow to thee my country. And then it also got pinched for the Rugby World Cup, kind of world in union. Oh, yeah. And Holst was very uncomfortable with this idea of his, his music being used in this sort of patriotic way. That wasn't his bag at all. But yes, he is viewed as very much part of the, the sort of British music establishment. Um, Elgar, he never intended for his land of hope and glory to become this great patriotic anthem either. It was just a very good tune that he wrote. And so yes, a lot of the composers we think as being these great kind of British establishment figures were actually quite pan-European. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, before we leave Holst behind, um, what's your, if you had to recommend one piece by him, I've asked you this as we're climbing this steepest hill. That's all right. Uh, if I had to choose one piece by Holst, well, that, that evokes, perhaps evokes the best evoked landscape, countryside. I think I'm going to go back to Egdon Heath. Egdon Heath. Yeah. Okay. It's, 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 not, um, it's not the easiest listening, actually. If you're looking for the sort of some of the tunes you get elsewhere in Holst. It's, it was late Holst and he could be quite experimental, but it really does conjure up a very, I think I say a very Hardy-esque atmosphere. He really had done his research. Yeah. If you read, I know it's never easy reading either, isn't Hardy, but oh, if you read, no, a, no. <laughs> read your Hardy novels, listen to Egdon Heath and you'll, you'll kind of, you'll see where he's coming from, I reckon. Lovely. That'd be my choice. Great recommendation. So we've arrived at the top of quite a steep climb there, and we we thought it wise for our listeners not to <laughs> not to talk. So this is yeah. What's this? This, this we've, we've kind of well, it's it is a quarry, a mine, a sort of they're they're the Leckhampton lime kilns. So of course there was lime quarrying here. And I've I, I presume that sign is going to tell us when they finished. Kind of I think about the 1930s. Yeah. If you look the actually if you go look down the hill which we've just come up to get to this point, you'll actually notice that the path is dead straight and quite wide. 
Um, and that is because it's the path of the old tracks that they put down to wheel the stone down the hill. The old tramways. The old tramways, or, yeah. Or narrow gauge railways. Very similar to where I live in South Wales. This sort of just hints of industry. What's this sort of towering over us? <laughs> right, this is called the Devil's Chimney. Um, and it's a bit of a, a Cheltenham landmark. Whenever you see websites about Cheltenham and the area, you will always see lovely views of the town, which we're going to see in a second, looking from above here. And it's a limestone stack. It is, of course, not natural. It's um, man-made. It's a, a, a remnant of the, old, of the old lime quarrying days. Did they just leave a remnant on its own? Clearly, is yes. That what, that's very interesting. The same thing has happened near me on the hills just south of Abergavenny. It's called the Lonely Shepherd, the one where us, with us, and it's a similar thing, perched over a valley. Well, I, I, I love it. It shows how you can create a sort of local landmark in the simplest of ways. Cheltenham is full of beautiful buildings. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, but whenever you see photos of Cheltenham, you can guarantee that that, that will be there rather than half the, the buildings. The what of you? What a view, Jeremy. It's, it's stunning, amazing. isn't it? This is what has kept me going through a lot of the lockdown period, I will say. Coming up here, we've risen from, from sort of dark wooded paths. Suddenly we've reached the crest of Lakehampton Hill. Well, sort of the crest. There's a little, There's a little bit more to go, but yeah, we're pretty much near. And, we're just, and this is the initial view down across the sort of Vale of the Seven, really. You've got kind of um, Cheltenham before us. Malvern's, you point out Malvern's? Yeah, that's Malvern's directly in front of us, yeah. poking out of the out of the mist, actually. It's rather atmospheric. The mist is fantastic. There's just a few hilltops poking out, and then there's this... I can imagine Vaughan Williams sweeping violins here. Um, in the distance, the Welsh hills and Herefordshire, and, and just the smoky mist, very even. I mean, I drove through it this morning. It was, it was proper fog then, but it's beginning to burn off with this unbelievably beautiful sunlight it's still very special and there are church spires there are villages there are hamlets there are rolling combs and vales and it's 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 england as envisaged it by, really is by our sort of you know in our, on our, in our deep hearts i suppose we'll try and ignore the sound of the m5 <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> rolling down through the middle of the seven valley but yes yeah. yeah so this is a view that to me kind of a I can imagine Vaughan Williams sweeping violins accompanying it. Well, yes, very much. He, Vaughan Williams um, was born about, it must have been about 15, 20 miles south of here, also in Gloucestershire, another Gloucestershire man, in a village called Down Ampney, um, which is kind of quite near Swindon. And although he, mo he moved away from Gloucestershire fairly early in his life and spent much of his later years either in London or Surrey, in fact. But yes, he spent a lot of time exploring the countryside. There's a lovely picture, actually, of him walking with Holst in the Malverns, going out for a walking trip together. Ironically, although Vaughan Williams did conjure up a lot of the countryside in his music, and again, particularly using folk songs, as I mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier on, there's, there's a, a famous symphony of his called the Pastoral Symphony, his third symphony, which has absolutely nothing to do with the countryside at all. So it's a bit of a red herring, that one. Oh, right, OK. It I was, don't know it at all. So um, right, it we was, might put it on our playlist, just as a one that doesn't evoke the countryside. Well, what it is all about is the title is very ironic. Oh, OK. It was... Yeah. Um, Vaughan Williams was um, served in the First World War as a stretcher bearer and kind of was obviously unsurprisingly had very kind of clear memories, distinct memories of that. And the Pastoral Symphony is actually about the, the scenery of the battlefields of World War I in oh, northern France. Gosh, okay. These horrible mud baths, the sort of bleak, again, lifeless areas. Um, and the sort of, there's a very haunting moment where you hear this trumpet solo going. Um, you know, it's that sort of, it's almost like the last post. However... If we are talking Vaughan Williams and pastoralism, I could go on forever about various pieces of work. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, I think the one which I'd go for first of all was, ironically, it was also written in during wartime, but his Fifth Symphony, which he wrote in the 1940s, and possibly his most famous of his, of his nine symphonies. Um, it, it's almost like a longing for the countryside and better times ahead in the midst of these bleak war times. And again, you mentioned earlier on about the sort of what makes 
pastoral music, sound pastoral, it's these, it's these evocative horn calls. Mm. It's these, um, these kind of long sweeping melodies, so sort of the feeling of lingering in the music. You don't feel the music, is, sometimes you feel the music's not going anywhere. It sort of drifts. Yep. And you get a lot of that in his fifth symphony. But the work which I think he's most famous for, which depicts the countryside, is The Lark Ascending. Yes. Which yes. is a work for violin and orchestra, which he wrote again, there's a bit of a theme coming here, in 1914, yeah. just as Europe was heading towards war. Now, it's actually based on a poem by George Meredith, who's a poet in the 19th century. The piece itself is written for violin solo, um, twisting, turning violin solo, which depicts, that's basically the lark, mm. and then an orchestral background, which is the, the scenery around it, if you like. Now, although the piece itself is based on this poem, which is kind of, it's a kind of a, the, poet, the poem itself is a sort of pastoral idyll, the kind of the, the lark set against this pastoral yeah. idyll, um, you can actually read quite a lot of other messages into there. So you can look at the timing of it, um, think was was Vaughan Williams suggesting something about the onset of war because he was quite prescient with Vaughan Williams because you've got to look, always pays to not look at things with hindsight here and kind of see how the, the war turned out to be in 1914 Britain was pretty gung-ho about going to yes, war yes I remember doing the war poets and the, the early poems of the war are very much off we go, how can I have Yep. Win, win glory for Britain. A lot of music at the time was similar. Ravel, who was also going off to war, wrote a really kind of quite triumphant, here we go, we're off to war. That was in his piano trio of 1914. Gives a really optimistic view of it all. Yeah. Now, this piece by Vaughan Williams seems to intimate that you've got this beautiful lark flowing, kind of flying up, but the orchestral, um, the orchestral texture below it sounds almost like dark clouds forming. But there is this sort of ominous feeling, which you do get in the countryside. If you can imagine this beautiful bird flying about, which doesn't match what it's like today, but you can see those dark kind of storm clouds coming and you've got this lone bird against yeah, this huge, yeah. overwhelming... Bravely singing. Bravely singing. Yeah. yeah, it's a very sort of... Oh gosh, you've given an extra dimension to it because I, I've always listened to it as... It is a brilliant evocation of, of a lark. I mean, I've heard thousands of larks singing in my life. I love listening to that in the depths of winter and imagining the larks above. It's, for me, it's the perfect evocation of downland, actually, the sort of rolling, sweeping hills, the violins, and then you get the... That sort of... But I want to tap into your expertise here, yeah. because what fascinates me about this work is that Vaughan Williams clearly knew the sound of the lark, and I suspect larks were quite familiar in his time. Um, he would have gone out, he'd have listened to it, kind of... Very common. Transcribed. Very, very common. Now, if you're writing a piece, similar piece today, about British birdsong, I would imagine you prob probably wouldn't choose the lark, because I don't know what a lark sounds like. You do, because you've gone out listening for well, them. Well, we have to take you lark hunting yeah. with the team, um, because they are... You can find them. Where they are still around, they're very common, but they should be all over the Cotswolds. This is perfect arable landscape and we were at the top of Leckhampton Hill and I could see the fields of the Cotswold Plateau behind me. That's lark country. Yeah, there's so many, so many changes to the landscape since Vaughan Williams was writing his music that things like yellowhammers, skylarks, nightingales, turtle doves, all these birds that have really influenced music I think well Nightingale has been really often depicted in music not just by British composers but Le Rossignol um, by Stravinsky okay he's Russian but he lived most of his a lot of his time in France is another classic example um, there's a Nightingale song in Respighi's Pines of Rome they appear all over the place that's wonderful we should do a Nightingale playlist actually but uh, well I was I mean, the birds I was talking about there were sort of farmland birds which yeah. are the ones which have probably suffered most in the last hundred years and so they would have been, as you said, they would have been really, really familiar and part of people's everyday lives and influenced, influenced poetry, they influenced folk song and, you know, grander classical music. But, but they've gone. A lot of these birds have gone from much of our landscape. and that's So, yeah, I wonder what birds would influence people today. Probably the jackdaw and the... I was about to say, <laughs> the magpie. The magpie, yeah. <laughs> well, there is, a, there is a piece by Rossini called The Thieving Magpie, so the magpies haven't... Been entirely left they're out of musicals. Yeah. They're not being neglected. Um, 
Right. We're at, we've reached this viewpoint. So we're looking out across the huge vale of the River Severn in here. But in the distance, the Malvern Hills. And there's obviously a very strong musical association with the Malverns. Yes, Malverns is Elgar country. Um, Elgar was born near Worcester, was brought up in Worcester, um, and actually lived in Malvern itself for a while. Um, he actually also moved down to London for a while and hated it. He was very much a, a country bumpkin, country boy. Yeah. Now, his music, Elgar, it's, he doesn't... There's not that many pieces by him which actually with explicit kind of countryside titles like The Lark Ascending or whatever, you just have to detect it within the overall sphere of his music. Like the beginning of his second symphony, it sounds like someone going out for a march in the countryside. It must be that. You kind of, the moment you hear it, you think... Second symphony, okay. It's like like a lovely sunny morning. You can imagine strolling out and saying, right, I'm going to go for a decent walk. Now, he was a major league walker and cyclist as well. He used to cycle around the countryside a lot, including the Morvans. Um, and Morvans was his patch. And there was a famous quote where he wrote to his friend W.H. Reed, who was a violinist. And he said, if one day you're walking in the Morvans and I'm gone, he said, and you hear my, my cello concerto, he said, don't worry, it's only me. Only and me, that was his so. idea, is that he's suggesting that even after he's dead, his ghost will be still around the Morvans. Now, the piece of music which I'd really like to bring up about him mm. and pastoralism depicting the countryside is, strange enough, his Enigma Variations. OK, which a lot of people will know. A lot of people will know. Now, this was written in the late 19th century. I think it was on the cusp of the 20th century, about 1899. Um, and it depicts every single one of the... You start with a, a tune, which is the, the famous enigmatic tune. What does it mean? No one knows. That's why it's called the Enigma Variations. Exactly. And then he plays around with this tune, depicting various friends. Every single one of the movements has three initials or four initials at the top, or two initials, which is the initials of a friend. Um, Now, some of these have got nothing to do with the countryside, but there's one or two which are are based completely on the countryside. And my favourite one is one where he depicts a walk along the River Wye in in and near Hereford. And it's with he's walking along with his mate, um, an organist called George Sinclair, who brings his dog Dan with him. And the music is depicting the dog running into the River Wye, running about and coming out again, shaking himself off. Yeah. It's a very gentle countryside that Elgar yes. depicts a lot of the time. It's not these sort of stark hills. The Enigma Variations is one of those pieces where you get so much more out of it if you listen to it with the, with the sleeve notes in front of you and read what he's, what's going on at all. Because Elgar was really well documented. He kept diaries, his wife kept a diary. He wrote loads and loads of letters. We know all about his friends. So when you read about them depicted in music here, it brings the whole thing to life. That's fantastic advice, actually. Maybe, but yes. you should listen to all. You say you should listen. To You've got to listen to the whole of the Enigma variations and just wallow in it and enjoy the with the in, sleeve notes. Yes, yeah, fantastic. Okay. While we're here, actually, yeah. at this very point, I just want to quickly Please. give you a, a geographical tour of what we can see from well, here. Well, I'd love that. Yeah. So, in terms of composers, this is an extraordinary part of the world for British music. Here, we've got the Morvans, which we can see directly in front of us, which is Elgar country. Now we're going to swing round to the west a bit, looking towards Wales, though we can't really see Gloucester from here. We can see a little lump in front of us. That's called Chosen Hill, which is short for Church Downhill. Now, the two composers, Ivor Gurney and Herbert Howells, used to go up there, and they were also big walking fans. Mm -hmm. They were the same generation as Vaughan Williams and Holst, and they used to take trips up there and just sit at the top of Chosen Hill for ages, kind of talking to each other, getting inspiration. From the countryside? From the countryside, yeah, both of them. Gurney was actually more famous for his sort of songs. Howells was, early on in his career, he wrote sort of these kind of quite pastoral-sounding chamber music and orchestral music. There's some more composers there to to, to evoke the countryside. Come this way, look towards the south. Um, If you carried on in that direction, you'd see Stroud and Painswick. Gerald Finzi, the composer, another great British composer, he was really famous for depicting countryside themes, including this amazingly short but beautiful piece called The Fall of the Leaf which is an, does, that does pretty much what it says on the tin. Mm. It's an autumnal orchestral piece, and it's just this very doleful, it's autumn's coming, the nights are drawing in, and it's got the this... The fall of the leaf. The fall right. of the leaf. This is my next recommendation, actually. Okay, wow. Now, Gerald Finzi actually lived... He, was, he wasn't from round here. He was from London. But he moved to Painswick 
for two or three years because he just had this idea that he really wanted to be in the countryside and yeah. enjoy the country living he hated it he got, <laughs> like so many like so many he got <laughs> bored stupid and went back to went yeah. back to the east um, but his fall of the leaf is he was brilliant at depicting the countryside and again songs were very much his thing a lot of his songs have that sort of pastoral feel to them go further south from Painswick we've got Stroud we're looking right into the sun now. Which, we about, well, oh, hello. About to be, um, I bet they're a, musical dogs. Orchestra of dogs. How many of them? One, two, oh, three, dogs. four, five, six. So yeah. anyway, south hello. from here. Hello. South from here we have Stroud. Now this is briefly, has nothing to do with music really, but this is where Frederick Delius um, yes, lived. Frederick Delius. Yeah. He actually was from Bradford. He wasn't from here, but in his early life, he was, his dad was a... Um, worked in the, I think it was in the wool trade or something like that, he was an industrialist and he insisted that Frederick work for the family company for a while and sent him to work in Stroud, he was based in Stroud for a year or so. A big town of wool and mills. Big, and exactly, but he moved abroad, he spent a lot of his time firstly in Norway, the States and then eventually settled in France. But despite all that, he wrote some of the most evocative English pastoral music there is, oh, that's even though he had this sort of wider worldview. Wonderful. Before we go any further, actually, I've just remembered another Gloucestershire composer, and if I don't mention him... You'll be run out of town. I will. It's um, Parry, Hubert Parry. Ah, yes, OK. Who was um, born um, just north of Gloucester. Um, his parents are very wealthy, owned a big country house just north of Gloucester. Now, he, famous for a different type of, of sort of pastoral music, is that he wrote Jerusalem, which, of course, set to Blake's music of voting England's green and pleasant land... Um, and he was a Gloucestershire man throughout virtually the whole of his life. Um, say that he's, he was, you'll see less of the pastoral stuff in his music, um, but there is that sort of one particular instance. Okay, Parry as well. A little bit of percussion coming from the, the woods to the, to the east of us. Yes, there's a shooting club up near Timbercombe Hill, and you can hear it from miles around. You can hear it from our house. Yeah. Uh, and you get used to it. Pocking away, yes. We're looking down at a sort of very classic. Cotswoldian scene, uh, Cheltenham, but with the hills and valleys. Oh. And there's a, a dog walker. There's a Cotswoldian song. <laughs> to our right is Cleve Hill, which is kind of this one here. Yeah, that's Cleve Hill. We well, can see three one. radio masts at the top of it. Oh, I see. Okay, Cleve Hill is. A... It's a fascinating hill, is because it's it feels like a bit of sort of Yorkshire moorland in the middle of the Cotswolds. It doesn't feel like Cotswold countryside. It's kind of it's got bracken and all that sort of stuff on yeah, there, and it's very and heather, and it's very very bare. Um, but going back to Holst briefly, he used to have a church position um, in Wick Rissington, which, is, as I say, is about 15 miles from here. And he would walk. You can see the valley. He would walk along just to yeah. the east of us, and he would put along. And he used to take his trombone with him. And he would occasionally stop and practice his trombone as he was walking. Out in these wooded valleys. Out in these very, wooded very valleys. Classic sort of quite sparse hills and then wooded valleys here line of poplars but yeah so he'd take his trombone and give give the give the countryside a blast of absolutely his, absolutely of the old bone but talking about birds again in music going back to the lark one thing which obviously they have been depicted in music for years and years and years because it's a very obvious thing to do because yes. they have their own natural song what is interesting is that some composers do a very they do a sort of generic stylized version of what birds roughly sound like so yeah. i think the lark ascending is a really good example of that whereas the french composer oliver messiaen olivier messiaen um, who lived throughout the majority of the 20th century he actually went out into the countryside and he was very precise about it and he recorded bird songs and then depicted them exactly as he heard them really? in his music so oh, i'd love to to hear a bit more messy in there. Can you, can you recommend a piece then? Well, he wrote this piece called Catalogue d'Oiseau, Catalogue of Birds. Oh, right. Um, and so, you, again, it's, it's, it, it won't evoke the countryside so much. It really is. It's exact, he was fascinated by the exact replication of bird songs. Gosh, that's fascinating. Because I, I want to ask you a little bit about thrushes, actually, from, again, from the, the non-expert view. Um, should I have been excited when I saw... A couple of thrush in our garden yes. earlier this year. Yes. Or they, because they're quite rare these days, aren't they? They well, they're one of these birds that, in the right places, you can still see and hear them in good numbers. And so people say, oh, "I've got loads of song thrushes around me." Well, there's no problem. And same with sparrows. But actually, song thrushes have had a big decline. Possibly just lack of food. I mean, they eat snails and slugs, and there's plenty of those. But when people are putting a, a lot of 
thousands of tons of slug pellets in their gardens. Oh, I see. It's had a big impact. They're not as common as they were, so I always hello. I always celebrate seeing a song thrush. I always write it down in my nature diary. Now, of course, the name again does what it says on the tin: song thrush. So, yeah. why is it called the song thrush? Is there uh, something special about its song? Which is really beautiful song. It repeats. Um, I've heard it described as snowy, 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 like that, and then it goes choop, choop, choop. So it kind of repeats phrases three times. It's not as lyrical as the blackbird. It's not as strong as the nightingale, but it's a really... I love hearing it, and they're just practising at the moment. We'll probably hear some on our way down here, actually, in these woods. If there's a bit of sun on the woodlands down here, we'll... But that's... And there's, um, well, there's a missile thrush, which has strange song which always seems distant no matter how close you get to a missile thrush its song is always wistful and very melancholic and a kind of sad notes like sort of almost like it's missing something or often sings around rainstorms so it's got a its alternative name is stormcock yep uh, which is quite amusing because i missed in the magazine i I accidentally wrote Storm Crow instead of Yay. Storm Cock. <laughs> and someone wrote in and said, Woke BBC. <laughs> Wonderful. It was purely a mistake on my part. And I do make mistakes occasionally. Oh, but, God, yes. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, Storm Cock. I'm, I'm happy to say the word. Talking of winter birds, am I allowed to take us briefly outside the United Kingdom for a really good depiction of, yeah, of yeah, bird life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our friend Sibelius. Sibelius, yes. Finnish composer, lived 1865 to ooh, 1956, I think it was. He had a, he had a good innings. Yeah. Um, he was famous for his depiction of swans. Um, and often these swans, you can imagine them swimming in bitterly cold... Finnish lakes, yeah. sort of. No one conjured up the sort of the bleak, chilly winter scenery like Sibelius yeah. did. And there's one famous piece of his called the Swan of Tuonela, which actually kind of, again, you can imagine this. It's actually based on a myth, but you can imagine this sort of lonely swan swimming around in a in a lake. And because the Finnish lakes are extraordinary, they go on for miles, and yeah. the landscape is very flat. It's very different from here. But at the end of his fifth symphony. He was inspired by the sight of a number of swans, I think it's about some 12 or something like that, um, taking off in flight. And the, final, the end of his fifth symphony is this majestic sight of these swans all taking off and flying above him. And again, you don't have to know that this is what inspired him to enjoy the music. It's in the most extraordinary piece of music anyway. But when you hear that description in his, or read that description in his diary and you picture it, it gives it this another dimension especially if you've been to Finland and you can picture the landscape as well well that's it's really extraordinary. I mean swans taking off is, a, is an epic event what exactly and, uh, you get the wings beating against the water and then the sort of slight creak of the feather of the wind through the feathers oh it's fantastic I used to be terrified of swans when I was little yeah because I used to go canoeing on a lake I used to, I used to be a very keen canoeer yeah or canoeist I guess um, but I was, for some reason, I was always told, beware of the swans, yeah. they'll break your arm, and all that That's nonsense. The classic. I think it's a bit of a myth. I'm sure it's a myth. Break a man's arm. I think, I think it's just one of those things. I mean, they are strong birds, and you wouldn't want to get a peck from a swan. No, but I uh, think a lot of the time they're just, unless they've got young, yeah. I think they're just, they're, I think they're quite in, kind of, in, they're sort of inquisitive, aren't they? They kind of want to come around and see what's going on. And They do that funny sort of... <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Which uh, that wasn't quite right, was it? Which is a bit intimidating when you get a, a large bird coming, but it, it's just telling you to back off. Yes. Well, the most famous, of course, the most famous depiction of a swan in music is the French composer Sasson in his Carnival of the Animals. Oh, yes. Um, okay. And then what he does there quite cleverly is that um, the swan, although the actual Carnival of the Animals is actually written for um, a small chamber group, the swan itself is just written for cello, solo, and piano. And the cello line is da, 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 da. and that's the sort of classic. It's the classic tale of the serenity on top and then the kind of paddling underneath. Because the piano line is this kind of much, it's this kind of rippling sound underneath. So the yeah. piano is effectively, it's doing this sort of. It's that's the sort of the a the water rippling either side of the swan, but it's also the kind of you imagine the swan's little feet going lily lily. Yeah, um, so yeah, the cellist yeah. is the sort of the. the what you see and the piano is what's going on underneath and it's this clever depiction what we can see here in front of us um, we're actually looking 
eastwards now and we can see what's called Timbercombe Hill. So we're sort of on the eastern side of Leckhampton Hill now, and we're coming, as you say, we're coming downwards. Now, it was at this spot in, I think it must have been about May 2020, so fairly shortly into the first lockdown, um, where at that time there was so little traffic. Although we've got the A435 running here, you couldn't hear it at all. Yeah. Everything was very, very silent. Um, and Kim, my wife, and I came up for an evening walk on a lovely evening, lovely May evening. And for the first time in my life, I think it was, on either side of the valley, I could hear two cuckoos. Wow. I Gosh. don't think I've yeah. ever heard a cuckoo before. I'm pretty sure I hadn't. And it was magical. And I am imagining it right. It would have been end of May, wouldn't it? That's the time to yeah, hear yeah. cuckoos. Yeah, cuckoos mid-April, sort of 20th of April to 20th of June. Right. You've got two months of cuckoos, and by the end of it, they're really sparse, hard to hear. But that's perfect. Yeah, May is... It's such a short time for some birds. And there's a particular reason why... musical reason why I want to bring up cuckoos, because we were talking earlier on about bird song, which would have been common in the day yeah. and less common these days. I say, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I ever heard a cuckoo. Cuckoos have been depicted. They've almost been the sort of default bird to go to for composers because they've yeah. got that dropping, yeah. which is a dropping major third, to put it in musical terms. Is that what it is? A dropping it? major third? <laughs> dropping major third. Um, the moment you <laughs> so hear it, you day. say cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. Yeah. It's so distinctive. Yeah. Composers over the centuries have used it. Beethoven uses it in his pastoral symphony, number six. So that's from the early 19th century. Sasson, in the same piece I mentioned earlier on, the Carnival of the Animals, uses the cuckoo in the heart of the woods. And then a classic British piece, Delius's On Hearing the First Cuckoo in Spring, which is another one which I want you to play to your listeners if you would. Okay, I would like, I'd love to hear that. I'll be playing these on my way way home in the car. But uh, again, this is a bit of a cheat because Delius, although as I say he came from Bradford, he moved around here briefly, but then he went to Norway and went to the States, as I was saying. Now, I think hearing the first cuckoo in spring for him was actually, I think he heard it in Norway, and that's what inspired him rather than the English countryside. But we as can, we're saying, we can forgive him. We can forgive him. Cuckoos, I presume, in those days would have been a pretty familiar sound. Much, much more common. I mean, they were a common, very common sound in my childhood in Somerset. And now, when I go back to my childhood landscapes, very rarely hear them, very rarely hear them, which is a shame. But I live in Wales, they're relatively common in the hills still, so... Well, Delius was a classic. He was a brilliant scene painter in music. Um, he's, a lot of his music actually sounds quite similar to, to Debussy, a French composer, who's a, a contemporary of his. Mm. And a lot of people, they, they say about Delius that his music spends a lot of time going nowhere. <laughs> you won't hear any driven melodies or it doesn't reach a point, it just drifts. And I love that. So as well as the, the first, on hearing the first cuckoo in spring, which is just this lovely evocative image of going out into the countryside and hearing cuckoos, he also wrote a piece about, these various pieces about drifting down on a, on a river in a sunny summer's evening. Oh, it's, it's delightful. Yes. It is really delightful. Sounds like one of our podcasts, Drift, Drifts Along. <laughs> drifts along. Apart from this one. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've, 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 so in that, a good way. He, he was an interesting character because he was actually of German stock. Um, Delius, the name yeah. Delius doesn't. And this is the thing about Holston Delius. You know, we do judge people by their names, and so yeah. I wouldn't have naturally gone to them as British composers who who evoked the British country. Well, that's but, it. He's, but you, he's, you've, you've educated me properly today, Jeremy. He's the, he's the least British of British composers, and yet he he managed to conjure up the image of the British countryside so well. I've been I've been standing on on a on a pile of horse. Oh no, while, while you're okay. <laughs> yes, I'm fine. I'll survive. It's, it's about the four thousandth time I've done that. Um, you mentioned to me another composer, if we could go on to... Arnold uh, Bax. Uh, and, and there's another name, B-A-X, Bax. Bax. I'd never heard of Arnold Bax, and you uh, invited me to listen to uh, November Woods. It's November Woods. If I were to choose, and I know this is, this is my choice, it's not what other people would choose, but if well, I had to choose... That's why you're here. One piece which, for me, sums up the British countryside, it would be Bax's November Woods. As a way of aside, I'm just going to quickly mention another piece of him, which is, which is really famous, which is Tintagel. 
Oh, he wrote that. He wrote Tintagel, which is a depiction of the famous Arthurian fort in Cornwall. And it's a lovely depiction of actually it's the sun glistening off the sea Mm. round the fort of Tintagel. If you've been there, you'll be able to picture the image. Sort of on a little island. Exactly. And and it's, again, it makes you realise how clever these composers are. You can, the moment you hear it, you can imagine the sea round this this very distinctive fort. But that's one piece. um, November Woods is, it's... It's, um, he, Bax was a naughty boy. Oh, was he? He spent a lot of his time, he had a lot of affairs. Um, um, Again, he's another composer who explored a lot of the countryside, but this is closer to home. This is based in Hertfordshire, and he was having an affair with... Was he he going off to see his mistresses? Yeah. On long walks to see his mistresses? Exactly. (laughs) Really? And this one pretty much depicts this, one of those occasions. He has, um... He was having a... (laughs) He's having a, a... An affair with a pianist called Harriet Cohen at the time. Um, and this piece of music depicts them going out for a walk in the... Although it's called November Woods, apparently it depicts a, a, an episode which happened in October, late October. And they're walking through the woods and you can hear a storm breaks. Yes, I, def- I was going to say, I thought it was a, a gale in a woodland. It is. And I think it is... For me, That's that is amazing. what the British countryside is about. It's not... Although today is lovely, we've got the beautiful countryside. Today is a still day. I love that thing of just walking through really quite grim mm. autumn weather. Um, and then within, the, and that's what's going on there. And so they shelter in the woods and eventually they see their hotel. And they make their way out of the woods and they go and to the hotel and do what couples do in hotels okay. at the end. But, but, uh, yes. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> but it is just the most fantastic depiction of... of what the English countryside is about and the moment you hear it you think I, I know that I completely well I knew it was called November Woods so I was thinking of woodlands but of course there is that gale in the middle or storm in the middle and it was absolutely I mean, the first thing I was going to say was is it about a storm in the woods and, and it is so clever old backs I didn't know I didn't know that piece the person who actually alerted me to that piece I didn't know it before was Andrew Marr the journalist oh really Okay. Yeah, we did a piece for BBC Music Mag many years ago where we were asking people, what's your ideal piece of British music? And Andrew Marr knows his classical music. He said, I want to go for Bax's November Woods. Really? And he Gosh. described it actually pretty much in the way that I've just described it. And he said it, it means a lot to and him. You and you didn't know it before, really? Or you, I no, mean, Bax... Bax I, I, I love Bax, but I, I've known a little bit of Bax. He's, I love his music. It's, he writes... Um, some of his chamber music for string quartet, etc. It's just glorious. Um, he also spent time in Ireland, and he builds a lot of kind of Irish-sounding folk music into some of his music. Beautiful stuff. But yeah, again, he was the same generation, probably a little bit later than Vaughan Williams and Holst, I think. Um, and he's just really, really evocative stuff. Oh, wonderful. Gosh, what an eye-opening podcast. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I really... I can't wait to get back onto the sort of... onto my music streaming services others are available and listen to some of these ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So that was an absolutely lovely, a divine day in the Cotswolds with Jeremy Pound of BBC Music Magazine. And all of Jeremy's suggestions, all the wonderful choices he made of music that evokes the British countryside and beyond, can be found on our Spotify playlist. So if you search for BBC Countryfile magazine on Spotify, you can find all those pieces and enjoy them at your leisure. And let us know what you think and tell us about the music you enjoy. You can contact me, Fergus Collins. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. Now, for further ado, I'm delighted to say that Jeremy, who hosted me so beautifully up in the Cotswolds, is joining us in the virtual podcast studio. Jeremy, hello and thank you. Hello. Good to see you. And we've also got to listeners, no doubt, huge delight, Hannah and Jack, our regular podcasters. Love to see you both as well. Hello. Hello. Yeah, Jeremy, but I didn't ask you about music beyond classical that you, A, that you love and listen to, but also that perhaps also evokes the countryside have you ever well i do listen to loads of stuff beyond classical um 
I, I know quite a few people in the classical music world who only ever listen to classical, but I kind of like to share the love around. Nothing that really kind of evokes the countryside. When I'm working, of all things, I like to listen to Deep Purple, which you might think is not the easiest thing to work to, but for some reason I find it very easy to, to get on with. Um, but apart from that, yes, I'll, I'll listen to sort of Metallica and then anything. I'm a bit of a sort of 80s, 80s kid. I like to listen to all the big hits from the 80s, that sort of thing, um, plus jazz as well and world music. So I'm broad church, really. No stone is left on, or no rolling stone. No, no, no rolling stone, stone is left unturned. Yes, no stone roses are left unturned. <laughs> nice. nice, good work there. Um, and, and talking about sort of music and distractions, we touched on it. We didn't record it in the podcast, but people walking around the countryside with earphones in and not taking in the sounds. Obviously, we've talked about music that evokes the countryside, but. It's the sort of thing you'd listen to back in your armchair rather than when you're out. How do you feel about people who sort of block out the natural world? I can't believe they do that. I would never, ever listen to music while out and about. I, I love the sounds of the countryside. Going up to the top of the hill and just hearing the various bird calls um, and hearing, actually, it's also just the more sort of organic sounds like kind of wind and things like that. Beautiful sounds. It doesn't just have to be bird calls or animal sounds. I, I guess if you're walking through a townscape or something like that, I can see why you do it then. But if you're out in the countryside, why why do that? The, the sounds are beautiful enough. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think I agree. I, I'd miss even the gentle sweeping melodies of the M5 <laughs> from the top of this. <laughs> Hannah and Jack, we talk, obviously we're talking about here about music that we love that evokes big skies and big landscapes. Is there a piece of music that might sort of bring that to you? I do a rather embarrassing thing every time I come home on the train. Um, so between Bristol and Swansea, um, when I go past Port Talbot and you sort of see the hills for the first time, like here are the hills, here are the valleys, the landscape, we're in Wales. I always listen to Aberystwyth. It's usually um, Morris Northfield Squire performing. And I just make myself cry because I'm home and it sounds like home and it's all the stuff. It's all the stereotypes, but it's gorgeous. Is that a male voice choir? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's the, the sound of, I, I think, yes, it's sort of, it, it. when I hear one of those, I immediately think of those steep sided valleys and terraces of of industrial towns that sort of thing what's that welsh word for longing for home here so it's it's sort of it's a bit like nostalgia so it's a longing for something that sort of uh, isn't there to begin with i don't know it's like it's not necessarily homesickness it's tied up in all the sorts of different history and um evocations of the past so it's not directly translatable into English, but it's that kind of draw and that drag. Jack, how about you? Any longing and belonging? Well, I was going to make a confession. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we were going to do that off off record. (laughs) I'm prepared to be booted out of the meeting, but I am one of those people that may listen to music when I'm out and about. Oh, Jack. Well, tell us why. I don't do it all the time, but for places that are like local to me, Sometimes I'm walking the same place a couple of times quite regularly that to my untrained bird ears and stuff like that, that if I'm going in two days in a row, the second day, the stuff I hear is probably going to be similar to what I've heard the day before. And I think where I have quite a creative mind, I've there's something about me that if I'm somewhere and I've got a bit of music playing, I like quite sort of cinematic, orchestrated or stuff that's made for film, because I think they're trying to portray an image via the music. But I think if you, if when I'm listening to that in a place, I kind of link it to that place. I kind of experience oh, that place wow, differently. Okay. And then later on, if I'm home and I'm listening to that piece again, I kind of then get reminded of where I was and what I experienced in that place. When I was studying for finals many, many years ago, I played the same piece of music again and again and again when I was learning a particular text because I used to do that thing of associating what I was learning with the music. And it does work. It's funny. So if I was reading, because I I studied classics, so if I was reading, say, some Virgil, I'd play the same piece of music the whole time when I was studying Virgil. And the combination of the music 
and the words would ingrain themselves just like the same way as it playing that music brings out that landscape for you. It's that sort of association that music can have in all sorts of different ways. Jack, you put up a very good defence for playing music while outside. I It reminded me uh, similar associations of when I was little. Uh, I had to, for, for various reasons, I had to drive up and down. Well, my parents would drive up and down to London every week between where my mum worked and where my dad worked. So every weekend we'd go back across the A303, the M3 and the A303, which goes across Salisbury Plain. Epic, big landscape of ancient sort of sites and quite bleak, big skies, Stonehenge, that sort of thing. And they'd always play um, Vaughan Williams' Variations on the Theme by Thomas Tallis. Is that is that what it's called? Yeah, Fantasia, um, Fantasia, Fantasia on the Theme by Thomas Tallis, yes. Yeah, that's it. And, and an amazing piece of music, which totally for me now, whenever I hear it, I'm instantly transported into the back of the family Chrysler <laughs> and looking out the window at Salisbury Plain. And it's it's so deep that I, I when I went back there to some of those sites, I actually played the music. So, yes, Jack, your your defence was a valid one in this court of music. Interestingly, we went very close to the place where the Fantasia on the theme of Thomas Tallis was premiered because it was actually first performed in Gloucester Cathedral. Really? So just yeah. around the corner from where we did our little walk. Um, and that was back in 1910, I think it was. Oh, my goodness. So that's another another Gloucestershire piece. Jeremy, you are such a fount of knowledge. And I think our listeners will really appreciate the detail and <laughs> the passion that you've brought to our podcast, which um, I'd like to say we have every week. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you indeed. And before you go, uh, we've got a couple of regular things that we'd like, to, um, like you to be part of. Perhaps, um, well, we've talked a lot about sounds that we've enjoyed that evoke the landscape, but we've got a sound of the week this week, haven't we, looking at Hannah Tribe? We do. We do have a sound of the week. Here it is. That's intriguing. What? What? Unwrap it, please. <laughs> well, I was talking about um, sounds evoking space. I don't think anything evokes the sound of a winter's night like the cry of a fox. How did you capture that then? Were, were, were well, you now late at night? No. Coming, so coming back from the park? I was, was actually it? just going to bed and brushing my teeth and the bathroom window was open and I heard a tawny owl and I was like, this will be great. Didn't record the tawny owl. Of course, by the time I got my recorder out, they'd gone. This doesn't often happen, but I'll put my recorder out and I'll be like, oh, it's quiet, nothing happens. And the fox just went, just went for it. I hadn't heard the fox beforehand. It was completely spontaneous and amazing. And what I really liked about this was that it's not just the cry, but they also do this kind of adorable little, like, chattering sound to one another. It's like a little cackling, crackling kind of chat that is lovely and it really gave a sense of sort of play and fun and they were like having a nice time out there in the frost. I need to brush up my fox knowledge but is, is it sort of like a call for, is it the vixen calling from the hills saying it's time to mate? I think so, yes. Yeah. It sounds to me a bit like it might be a, a vixen talking to baby ones or to another vixen or to a dog like that chat between the two I don't think it was just one on its own right okay gosh interesting well please listeners do send in more thoughts because that's an eerie eerie sound and really yeah. lovely to get a sound of mammals rather than just the birds that we often get it's like um absolute bbc sound effect for country house at night time yeah, that's right. That's right. Creep burglars creeping around yeah. or something, poachers in the woods. Um, we love sounds, uh, getting these sounds. Um, please, listeners, do send in anything you've recorded out in the wild. So again, my email address, editor at countryfile.com, and we will play it within the podcast if we can. But Jeremy, you can't escape yet. I know you, you probably thought you can get out the door, but we've also got... Well, Jack's got the podcast post bag. Jack, what have we have we got something for Jeremy this week? Yeah, I've I've shared the post bag this week, and uh, Jeremy does have a little review. A review. 
Yes, I've got a I've got a review to to read you here. It's an interesting one. It says it's four stars, and it says interesting podcast with change of focus seasonally. However, I must insist on more Joel, Satgav, and Fat Golden Eagles. Disappointingly, he spells fat with an F A T rather than P H A T. But I have no idea what that's about. Can you explain it to me? Right. Well, I'll unpick that. This is a bit cryptic. Thank you, uh, reviewer. It's uh, four stars. Delightful. Uh, Joel and Gav, known as Sat Gav, are two of my friends. Um, Joel is a historian and Gav a musician uh, who loves fly fishing. And they took me to the farest north of Scotland in two episodes last year, 108, 115, where we did a bit of fishing on a lock and we climbed Sullivan, one of the peaks there, which was just a, a brilliant adventure. And I'm delighted that, that this reviewer has enjoyed it because I'm going back with them this in 2022 to do a bit more of that. And we may do some more recording primarily to find those fat golden eagles because we didn't see any golden eagles this time. Around. Well, I'd, I'd settle for a thin one, <laughs> even a scrawny <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah, just just any old eagle will do. But I'm really hopeful to go up for a full week and, and do a bit of exploring. It is magical up there and perhaps jeremy i might ask you for some musical tips for when i go that's easy you want to take mendelssohn's scottish symphony with you when you go (laughs) fantastic how brilliant i would just like to thank you for that but also again a a really memorable day and i think it's a it's a lovely podcast and i'm sure many people enjoy it and thank you hannah and jack for your ever fabulous input and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Join us again next week. And thank you so very much for listening. Goodbye for now.